Welcome to Footnotes, a history podcast focusing on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side, and those who lost. My name is Mark, and I'm joined here with my best friend Kevin for Endurance Part 2. We finished the last episode in an unpleasant place for the crew of the Endurance, led by Ernest Shackleton. With their original mission of traveling to the Antarctic continent and crossing it for the first time in human history, their original mission was rather quickly discarded as their ship became locked in the ice. Drifting helplessly through the winter of 1915, the crew of the Endurance did their best to make the most out of that situation. They hunted, they skied, they laughed, they joked. They kept morale up as they wintered over in one of the most inhospitable places on planet Earth, surrounded by mirages of snow and iceberg, of a midnight sun and a polar night. They hunted penguins and they endured winter madness. And then the worst happened, and the ice from below their ship and its insane pressures caused by wind and current rent a hole in the side and then shattered the boat. That's not what you want. No. Now, a crew of 28 men are 350 miles from, from land, camped on the ice. Their tents are paper thin. Any ice that forms forms on the surface and covers them in rime which is kind of a salty ice. On that first night on the ice, they must, must re-pitch their tents three separate times as the ice beneath their feet begins to crack and break apart. The boat is still sitting on top of the ice in their view as they routinely have to rise up, gather all their gear, and run to a new spot. Because if they don't, they know they'll all fall into the water and drown. So no one's sleeping well during this, this part of the trip. There is no sleep happening. Jeez. Shackleton, Hurley the photographer, and Wilde the second command returned to the ship and managed to grab a supply of warm milk and using one of their many small stoves, heat it up so that when the men finally do wake up after this ordeal, they are given a warm drink. Shackleton, he knows, he knows how to work on morale. And that was his explicit goal, as he says. And he's actually surprised, and all three of them are surprised, when the men accept the drink without any fanfare, as if it was just expected. And so his attempt to improve their morale is just received with kind of a nonchalant, oh, cool, thank you. He, he writes about it in his book. Still, he's still kind of bitter about it after the trip. <laughs> because he didn't sleep the entire night to make sure his men were a little bit more comfortable, and they basically, you know, just ignore him. Now the the crew is in an, in an untenable position. The ice is breaking around them. And though they know they can survive on the ice for quite a while longer, they are still surrounded by lots of supplies, their, their, their clothing, their gear, their tents, will provide them enough shelter so they don't freeze. The chance that the ice will break underneath them at some point is very high. And so they need to come up with a solution to get off of the ice. They set up camp for... A little while, and they call the camp Patience Camp as they figure out what to do and just wait. They're still doing the naming thing. They'll do this a lot. The ice is still drifting toward the north. 
at this point. So they're moving, but slowly. And they can kind of tell how they're moving just by watching the, the area around them. And sometimes they can start to see the shoreline. We're getting to the point where they're starting to actually move upwards, uh, upwards being northwards, uh, fairly quickly. Well, Shackleton knows that there is land that they could walk to. They know where they are in the Weddell Sea. And if they could get their sleds together, attach the dogs to them, and they've been working their dogs out all winter, and their dogs are well-trained and know what to do, and they know how to drive the dogs. If they can gather up enough supplies that'll last them for a considerable amount of time, they can sled across the ice to an old supply dump on the Antarctic landmass that they could then use to continue their trip. It's fascinating that we're at a point in history where they're so disconnected from everything else and everyone everyone else on the planet, and yet they're like, oh, but there is a supply drop on the continent. Like, there is a place that we can go to that we know there's some stuff there and or sometimes people swing by. And Shackleton knows for sure because he's been there. He was, he was yeah, part yeah. of the reason the supply dump exists. With the sleds filled with the dogs and filled with their supplies, which will be pulled by men and dogs, they're also going to drag two of the life, two of the three lifeboats so that if they have to, they can take those lifeboats and travel up to one of the more inhabited islands once the thaw fully kicks in. Remember, this is October, so this is spring. There should be a thaw coming, and as they move further and further north, the higher the chance that they will enter more open water. They'll enter a, a, a location where the high temperature breaks the freezing mark. We're so far south still that even in July, most of these places, the air temperature never really breaks 40 degrees until you get to the very top of the Antarctic Peninsula. And then it's about the same temperature as like southern Greenland. This is a very cold, windy, and damp place that they are heading toward. And damp sucks. And damp is by far the worst thing that can happen. Yep. Cold and dry is fine. Cold and damp is absolutely miserable. And remember, this is cold, damp, salt water. And salt has its extra fun experience attached to it. That's that's the only kind of salt I buy. The extra fun. (laughs) Just imagine that on the label of Morton Salt. Extra fun. Extra fun. The the little the little girl with the with mm-hmm. the umbrella on the umbrella. it just has like really big fancy sunglasses or something. Yeah. How did we get there? I, the way you said extra fun really just kind of like stuck in my head. <laughs> when Shackleton makes this this decision, it is not a popular one. However, he has led them through thick and thin, so the men agree. Shackleton orders them to lose all but two pounds of their gear. So everyone makes this giant pile out in the snow, right outside their boat, of any gear that doesn't fit that two-pound requirement. He wants these guys to march light because they're going to have to be dragging two boats and multiple sleds with the dogs together. They make sure they include enough rations to get them through a couple of months as well as uh, all the sled rations, so the rations for the dogs which is what's called pemmican, which is an, a mixture of fat and protein. It's basically like really fatty beef jerky that is very nutritious, and it's something that um, Native Americans of pretty much all different sorts that live in the colder areas of North America would use to survive the winter. 
and you, you butcher an animal and you make these like little discs, these maybe little pucks of fat meat mix. And it was great for the dogs, but if they had to, they could eat it too. They can eat it too. One of the sadder things that happens at this point is they have to shoot the cat because they can't bring the cat along. He's just extra food. And also a variety of dog puppies had been born and they have to shoot all the puppies. They have to leave everything behind but the bare necessities. I don't like this episode anymore. And it's clear that that was such a drain on morale that a lot of men struggled to even talk about it in their diaries because they had spent months with their pets. This was, you know, their, their family away from their families. Remember, all these men are mar- most of these men at least are married. Shackleton's married. And they, they have their families and kids super far away. This is their new family, and they just had to kill the weakest members. Everything goes wrong from the outset. Shackleton had scouted ahead, and he had been able to make pretty good progress on foot, walking over the various um, crevices in the snow and ice and the various ridges and bumpy ice. It's never flat ice. It's always this constant just up and down, you know, five feet difference between the high points and low points, nice traversing back and forth around pressure ridges. Shackleton is able to make pretty good progress on his own. And so he says, well, I think we can have the sleds do this too. The problem is the sleds are exceptionally heavy and they have to go in big wide circles around all of these different areas just to try to find flat snow. Or men in a pioneer party have to go ahead of the sleds and basically chisel the ice down and make these snow roads out of the ice. Every aspect of this is immensely labor-intensive. These are guys who are now operating on a restricted ration, working themselves to the bone all day without almost any break to drag these sleds potentially 350 miles to land. And then the worst possible thing that could happen to them happens. A north wind comes down and there's a sudden thaw. Now, as they're trying to drag their sleds and their boats across the the ice, they're now crossing it with feet of slush that they are stumbling and falling into. Open holes form and the men fall into them. This isn't into the water. This is just into a new lake of ice, icy water. So they're drenched. They're freezing. They can't dry. And they're making almost no progress as they move through this ice. As the men move their sleds and boats across the ice, they're not moving across a flat ice surface. The ice is covered in crevices and ridges and it's got bumps and you know pressure ridge remnants and in places there are full-on ridges of ice so not great for dragging sleds and supplies it's so bad that they have to have a pioneer party of men basically making uh openings through the various ridges and smoothing out the ice and making it so there's a snow road for the men to travel across the temperature begins to warm up and everything turns to slush, and the men are dragging these sleds through you know, knee-deep water, you know, 30-degree water. That's awful. They make almost no progress. You know, we're talking a mile a day for multiple days. 
So Shackleton calls it off. And they begin to reset up their camp on an old stable flow on the ice. A couple, a couple miles from the boat? Yeah, a couple miles from so the boat. So they're still within like eye, eye, like eye line of the boat. So they can see the boat, they can see all their old supplies, and they can hopefully retrieve some of them. Where all of their pile of debris was kept, they called dump camp. And there's just a giant pile of supplies outside the boat. And it's incredibly valuable supplies. And so some of it's been frozen into the ice, and it's now below a surface of clean, clear ice. (laughs) They can't get their supplies because it's too deep, but they can see it. So they realize now they have to go get as much as they can off of the boat because they're going to have to wait on the ice until the ice breaks up enough so they can get into the lifeboats and go up to some of the many islands off the coast of Antarctica that are further north toward South America. That's their only hope, which is an awkward balancing act. It's a terrifying balancing act because they have to wait for the ice to break up enough so that there's enough openings and leads so they can get their boats into the ice. But at the same time, if they wait too long, the ice will break underneath them and they'll fall in. They have to get off the ice just at the right time as it gets warmer, as it thaws, as they're basically living in slush, in paper-thin tents, with the deepening pessimism of, we may not get out of this. Shackleton searches for a stable old flow. That phrase is very common when you're reading about this expedition because every time there's a problem with where they are, they have to find stability. They just want to find a spot that isn't going to snap underneath them. Or come crashing back together. Or come crashing back together. And it's got to be large enough that it, that they can camp in the middle so that even with the impacts and the pressure ridges, it's unlikely that the area they're on will experience those things to such an extent that they'll hurt a human being-sized thing, right? The boat being so large was more susceptible to being hit by pressure ridges than a disparate spread-out camp of humans. So they retrieve all as many of the old items at dump camp as they can, and they set up camp at what's called ocean camp on that stable iceberg. Not iceberg. It's a stable flow near an iceberg. Near many icebergs, actually. There's icebergs, and they use those, again, as landmarks, and that's how they know where things are. So it's this far from that iceberg. It's this far from that iceberg. Well, when they go back to the ship, they basically begin to truly dismember and cannibalize the ship. And there's beautiful pictures of the ship. And this is when it looks like it got hit by a bomb because it's just torn apart. And even though he had just rebelled against Shackleton, McNish goes to work making the boats they have true boats. I mean, these were just, you know, rowboat, lifeboats. They take, like, uh, nails and screws and various parts of the ship, and they add masts and sails to the the three lifeboats. They go retrieve the third one um, from near the ship. They get as many of the different, like, uh, crates of blubber and seal meat and things like that as supplements to their diet. They dive into the boat. They go into the boat, which is covered in water, and just have guys reach into the darkness and start grabbing boxes and watching... Just hoping that something of value comes out. And they get super happy when it's anything with high-calorie content. Butter and cocoa and things that are going to make them feel good. And when it's other things like soap, they get... Like, it doesn't matter. You know, I don't I don't remember if it's actually soap. But, you know, they, they get excited about some and 
unhappy about others, but it's a crapshoot. At one point, Hurley has to go underwater and like break into the boat to get his negatives out. Mm. All of his photographs, the photographs in the book, were in the boat that's sinking. He has to get special permission to get them and then bring them. This is actually before the march. And so the fact that he did that is why we have any pictures, and he only took his best 100 or 150. He, he took his best of his best. So he took a thousand pictures, and we have his best. Or at the very least, what he felt were the best yeah. on, on the trip and everything. So there are just thousands of will-never-be-discovered photographs under an ice shelf somewhere. Mm-hmm. Or at the bottom of the or, or at the bottom of the Weddell Sea. You yeah. Know? They get as much as they can out of the boat as possible. They now have about two and a half functioning lifeboats. Two of them have full-on sails and masts that they can even use to turn the boat and go against the wind and things. And the other one is kind of ready as they prepare this. At Ocean Camp, they actually use the wheelhouse of the boat, which is basically a big wooden room, and they use that as their storehouse. So that's where they put all the food and supplies and crates, and they have rations to last them for a pretty good amount of time. But one thing that's odd is that Shackleton won't let them carry more rations than only about a month into the future. And that has a weird... Like it's, it's backwards. You'd think they won't have as much food as possible. But the belief system behind only having about 30 to 60 days worth of food is if you are always preparing to leave, and that's always what's on the mindset of these men, is soon we will get out and we will be successful at surviving. It helps to keep morale alive. And if you are always saying, we need to keep as much food as possible because we might be here forever and we might all die in this place unless we store, 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 that trickles into the men's minds and it makes it so they're not as resilient. Yeah, and you're, you'll be more motivated to take new ground every day when you have that very obvious ticking clock of your supplies as opposed to being able to go like like what they did for the last year of just sitting around going, hey, we're fine. We got plenty of food. We are totally happy to just sit on this ice for an entire year. That, that becomes a problem. You have to motivate the men, and you motivate them by you know, lighting a metaphorical fire underneath them. Again, Lees is writing repeatedly and groaning repeatedly about how they don't have enough food. And so Shackleton actually has to isolate him. They make him sleep in the storehouse because no one wants to be around him anymore. But he's the most comfortable of any of the men because he actually has a wooden structure around him, whereas the rest of them have paper-thin tents. What is that old adage about squeaky wheels? They, they get the penguin blubber? Yeah. That, that's the one I've heard. Yeah. They spend the month of November, which again is the equivalent of May. They spend the much, month of November with a new routine out on the ice. They set up five tents. Um, Shackleton takes all of the difficult and bullied men into his tent to isolate them. And, you know, it's one of the sailors. It's, uh, I think, two of the scientists. These guys who are, there's nothing wrong with these guys. They're not hated. It's just, it's better to have them isolated with Shackleton he takes Hurley in his tent with him because Hurley had a bit of a um, arrogance about him, and Shackleton wanted to keep him close because I think during some of the mutiny that was going on, Hurley got a bit of a following behind him. 
because it's repeatedly mentioned by Carolyn Alexander, the main book we've used. Um, take a look at the show notes, download it. Mark really, really recommended it last episode, and I definitely recommend it too. There's beautiful pictures throughout the narrative. Uh, Carolyn Alexander mentions that Hurley may have pushed to take over from Shackleton, so Shackleton has to hold his enemies near him at this point. In the other tents, there's always some nominal officer in charge and a mixture of men with all the sailors being in one tent on their own. And there's a basic routine. There's always someone on watch, maybe even a couple, watching the ice and seeing what's happening. Um, There's always people keeping track of how far they're uh, drifting. They're drifting up toward the north. It's getting warmer and warmer. It's getting to the point where uh, there's times when it gets so warm outside that the tents heat up above 70 degrees, which is apparently beyond miserable to the men. Being accustomed to negative 10, negative 20 for the previous months on end, when they're inside these tents and it's so warm that the ground is more or less a lake and the men are sweating because they're wearing 16 layers of wool, they all have to go back outside. So they're, the, the, it's bizarre how the warmth is actually worse now because when you're prepared to freeze and it's really hot, you sweat, you smell, everything festers. These are not clean men. It's unpleasant. So November continues, and they begin to care a lot about how they are drifting. And they're presented with a few possibilities to how the ice flow is moving. What they want, above all else, is to go as northerly as possible. If you take a look at a map of Antarctica, The Antarctic Peninsula, then called the Palmer Peninsula, the single octopus arm, reaches up in a kind of a slight curve, but it it is more or less going northernly. And they're falling right on the eastern edge of it, up the coastline. At this point, they can see land. It's about 60 miles away. If they continue drifting north or west, they will reach land. Above the Antarctic Peninsula are a bunch of volcanic islands where there's a tectonic plate that is pretty much east-west. And along that east-west plate boundary, geologically speaking, it's just volcanic island after volcanic island. Mind you, there's giant 20-mile straits in between each one. But these are proficient sailors. If they can get there and get in their boats, getting to those islands is something that they can manage. At least that's the hope. If they drift to the west and they can anchor onto the fast ice, which is off the coast, they can get on that ice, go across land, and then get to various supply dumps or get onto a better spot of better beach, better ocean, and get out. They have the boats, right? So those are their options, go north or west. What's horrifying is if the drift stops, because then they'll get locked in and get stuck for another winter, and they don't have the supplies for that, or they'll have to hunt seals and penguins again just to survive and the most terrifying for them is if they go east because that places them in the center of the Weddell Sea where they have no chance of getting to land and they might just stall at the center of the cyclone and not do anything. As time goes by there is a clear grinding to the lives of these men. It's a boring repetitive pattern. Now In fairness, they're still pretty optimistic. The sailors are the ones that are really frustrated, and they're just kind of 
hold away and just isolate it and just deal with it till we get back in the boats, guys. But everybody else, pretty much according to their diaries, as awful as the situation is that they're in, they signed up for this. You know, they're they're like, we're on an adventure. Yeah. And even Lee's, for as negative as he is, he writes about how positive the experience is while they're drifting aimlessly on this really thin ice with all the horrors that they just went through. He's still saying this is a really good experience, and he knows everyone hates him. So they are there to do this. That's I mean, we talked about this. That they're explorers. They're there for this hardship. They're, they want this experience. Shackleton at this point gets such a bad bout of sciatica that he's pretty much bedridden for about a month until right before they begin to notice the ship is sinking. And on the 21st of November, Shackleton has to say, she's gone, boys, as he watches from an iceberg as the ship fully sinks into the water. I'm assuming with the radio tower and everything everything else. else. So now they are officially on their own. And what's worse is the flow begins to drift toward the east. This makes everyone panic. Just before Christmas, Shackleton decides they need to march to land again. There's too much fear that they're going to drift to the east. They, They are still on a connected group of ice flows. There's occasionally little breaks between them, but it's basically one giant field of white ice. And they can still move toward the the coast and get back to land. He's tried it once before. It didn't work. Now they don't really have a a choice. If they continue to drift eastward, they will lose their chance. The first time that these men did this, they weren't happy about it. But they didn't fully, like, rebel. They just dealt with it. This time, Shackleton has a meeting with his officers, and they actively fight him on it. They don't want to do this. They want to wait it out. They think they're going to change back directions in their drift, and generally the current should be pushing them north. So even if they're going east slightly, it should revert back to where it's supposed to go. This might be suicide. Or it's just not going to work, and they'll be back in the same position they were before. Just before Christmas, though, he makes up his mind and says, we got to do this. It will work. We'll make 15 miles a day. This will be great. 15 miles a day, given the previous uh, attempt, feels really ambitious. I get that that this whole endeavor is marked by uh, relentless optimism in the face of everything telling you the opposite is true. But, like, even by that... 15 miles a day seems like a like a big ask. And here's how it goes. To quote Alexander here, the following days passed in the same dreary and unrewarding routine. Never entirely rested, their hunger never entirely satisfied, and their clothes always wet. The men strained and slipped at their loads over the hummocked and slushy ice, averaging for hours of labor, labor a mile and a half a day. Shackleton's plan had been that they would pull west for 60 miles. By now, even he must have known that they would never make this mark. So people probably aren't thrilled? They begin to openly mutiny against Shackleton. The first to do so is the carpenter Chippy McNish, who becomes very vocal against this idea. It's those cat people. Oh, yeah. He argues that this is a bad idea and he shouldn't have to do it because since the ship has sunk... According to sea law and the ship's laws, he is no longer under Shackleton's authority. Cat people are the worst. 
McNish brings this up to um, Worsley, the captain who's third in command, who's in charge of that group of men who were pulling one of the boats. And they, they fight, they yell at each other, and Worsley can't get McNish to work. So as McNish is stirring up the other men, Worsley has to go get Shackleton and bring him back. And basically by sheer force of probably fists, gets the guy under control. And Shackleton has to gather the entire crew and all the dogs together and basically read the ship's articles and just assert his authority over them and say, I am still the captain of this crew even without a ship. And you will do what I tell you to do. By making that show of being in charge and just letting things settle slightly, the moment passes, McNish loses his momentum, and though the men are very much grumbly and their optimism has been completely shattered, they do go back to work for two more days, dragging their stuff through the snow. But then Shackleton gives in and says, this isn't working. And they all return back to patient's camp. So for all that work and all that hardship, nothing is gained. Again, they have to go and get their dumps of supplies. Again, they have to reset up the storehouse. Again, they have to drag the boats back to their camp. And they're back to watching the ice flow move day after day after day, knowing that the closer they get to the height of summer, the further north they get, if they do contain, continue to move on that trek, the higher the chance is that the ice will break underneath them and they have to play the timing game of do we get into our boats or do we wait? If we wait too long to get in our boats, an opening might appear and we will miss it. If we wait too long on the ice flow, the ice might break beneath us. And even if they do get in the water, it's not like they're jumping into a nice, pleasant ocean. No, it's a chaotic mass of ice and flows and icebergs that can easily destroy a lifeboat. However, Alexander quotes Worsley, who says, The boss at any rate has changed his mind once again, he, he said dryly. He now intends waiting for leads, and just as firmly believes he will get them as he did a week ago, that the ice would be fit for sledging the boats at a rate of 10 miles a day. You can hear the shade. Yeah. This is not a happy man. This is not a happy man. The bigger problem is they're running out of food. They lost quite a bit of their supplies when the boat went down, and they only received a few of them back. They have all of the pemmican for the sledging rations, and they have quite a bit of seals and penguins and things. But there are no more wildlife in the area. There's just no penguins and seals there. There's no one for them to hunt. The next couple of weeks pass as the men desperately wait for them to slowly drift northward. And the lucky thing that begins to happen is there are more storms coming from the south than there are coming from the north. And whenever there's a southern storm, they can sometimes make you know, dozens of miles of a northerly push. When the storms come from the north, they stall out and sometimes go backwards and spin around and go in toward the east, and they make this kind of wiggling track northward slowly. And the southern storms are the uh, drier ones, correct? Yes. So also just generally more pleasant. In fact, the men start to actively wait for just... Those storms, because they, they huddle down, they all snuggle together when it's really cold and they keep themselves warm. They, oftentimes these gales are so strong and so loud that they can only basically snuggle into their sleeping bags together, which are mostly made of varieties of skins and things. So they're really warm and barely can hear each other talking. 
Over just like the gale. Just the sound of the wind. And then when the wind clears, oh, they can get up. The sun dries everything because the sun's shining. And even though it's still freezing outside, it's it'll still dry things. You know, it still evaporates or you know gets frozen. Some terrible things begin to happen to them as they run out of supplies. They're not just running out of food. They're running out of really important supplies to some of these men. They're running out of tobacco. And this is when things get really dire. Because you know, these guys are chain smokers. Not all of them, but a vast majority of them just I, smoke constantly. But ironically, this will probably be worse for morale than anything else has been. Because you have that, that habitual thing. Mm-hmm. You have that addiction, and all of a sudden, now you're just going to be on edge at all times in a way that you can't fix. The tea is running out. They run out of hot oh, cocoa. No. The, the British and their tea. I know. They're running out of biscuits, which is basically a cookie. They're British. And though that seems like it's a delicacy at this point, these are actually incredibly important for their diets. So... Though a human being does not require carbohydrates to a, the extent that our modern diets have us eat, it is the best form of like endurance energy, right? Carbohydrates. And these men are now eating a meat and fat-based diet almost entirely. And as they start to run out of these biscuits, though they still have a lot, they have to ration them to such a small extent that the men are very weak. They don't have like long-term endurance. They can't push themselves. Their stamina is so low, though their strength is high. They couldn't go for a long walk, but they could bench press, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm sure all the smoking doesn't help with that either. And yet it still seems they're pretty comfortable and confident that they're on this great adventure. They're still fairly positive in their diary entries. Yeah, well, I mean, like you said, it's like this is what they signed up for. It's morale isn't going to drop until you feel like you're doing things for no reason or until you feel like, oh, death is around the corner. But when you're going, we're going to survive this, but it's difficult. That's like, that's the whole reason we came here. Yeah. Like, because, the oh, the tales will tell kind of thing. The harder it is now, the better it is at the end of the story. But what's worse for some of these guys and what starts to affect the morality is throughout this ordeal, the dogs are starting to die. It's not that they're not feeding them. It's that they all pass along these intestinal worms and they had forgotten the worm tablets on their way down and they're beginning to have to shoot the dogs progressively or they're dying. Well, they're also starting to have to shoot the more healthy ones at this point and eat them. And by February... I mean, they try to do all of the, the, the sledding at the end of December, so they persist through January and drift through January. By February, they have shot and killed and eaten all of the dogs. And it was, it's a necessity. But right as they kill the last of the dogs at the end of February, and they kill the last dogs in March, at the end of February, penguins start to show back up. And this is a good thing. Because if the penguins are there, that means the ice has broken up enough that the penguins can get in and out of the water. If the ice is breaking up, they might be able to get back in the water. And they can, of course, shoot and kill and then process the penguins. And from here on out, penguins and seals become the core part of their diet and fuel-making enterprises. The men begin to eat something called penguin hush. 
Hush that does not sound pleasant. is a fancy word for a thick stew. So they still have some flour and things like that. And basically you boil water. Remember, they get all the water from icebergs at this point. They got to go and chisel an iceberg to get water. They go and boil water. They cut up various parts of the, ch- the penguin. They put it into the water with a little bit of a thickening agent, usually a re- like a sledding ration. And then they just drink it. And they describe how they didn't like the taste of it at the beginning. But when their hunger became so overwhelming, quite quickly started to like the taste because they just needed the food. In his diary, Lees writes that with their current dietary supplementing, they have a lot more food, but their ratio of carbohydrate to protein means the men are never going to be as strong as they used to be. And another way of saying it is they pretty much have one push in them before they're out of energy. They're going to use up their fat stores and then they're going to be done. They can persist for a long time, but they're close to getting to that kind of malnutritional state where they are locked into where they are. They can't do anything with any expenditure of effort. They got one push left in them. Finally, in March, they drift far enough north that numerous islands, the islands they've been hoping to see, begin to pop into view. Islands like Elephant Island, named it for elephant seals, Clarence Island, and actually parts of the northernmost tip of the Antarctic Peninsula are visible a couple dozen miles away to the west and to the north. And they know if they can get into their boats, they can reach those by rowing there and using the sail as much as they can if the, the wind is blowing in that right direction. But they wait because the ice is still too locked together. They're hunting as many seals and penguins as possible. They're rationing more and more. They're trying to keep their morale up. Constant storms are blowing back and forth from these slushy snowstorms from the north and these frigid but pleasant (laughs) storms from the south. In April, the ice shifts and opens, and it finally breaks underneath them. It happens incredibly suddenly. It happens so suddenly that when it first happens, it breaks underneath one of the tents, and two guys in the middle of the night, fall into the ice. And thankfully, Shackleton had been awake, fretting, and he manages to get them out. That is, that is fortunate. A lot of the verbiage being used in this narrative feels very sudden. Uh, like when, the, when, when, when two uh, sheets of ice come into contact with one another and shoot ice directly into the, like, into the air and like, create these like, ridges and everything... It all feels like things that happen in an instant, but I must, but I, I imagine a lot of this stuff happens more slowly, but with just with a lot of force, but a lot more progressively. So to hear something like this of you go from feeling firm in where you are and then in the middle of the night, all of a sudden the ice just breaks under you. It's got to be such a terrifying escalation of things. This is, you know, one minute they're fine. Literally 10 seconds later, Shackleton is in the water, dragging a a man out by his um, sleeping bag. The guy's still in his sleeping bag in the water. And they would have both died if Shacklin hadn't just been pacing around in the moonlight because he's trying to figure out what to do. Shacklin writes how lucky he got they didn't lose those two men in his book. This is the 9th of April. It's actually starting to go back toward wintertime at this point. But there's a delay in the seasons in general, and the ocean is even more delayed because water as a substance heats up and cools off the slowest of pretty much any common substance on Earth. So 
In April, that's of all time, when the ice starts to move about. When that ice shatters, they all panic, and they all shift around to get into a place that's, um, you know, safe. At one point, Shackleton gets stranded on his own um, iceberg that is just only sort of connected. His ice flow is only sort of connected to the others, and he's drifting someone alone until they get him off of it eventually comes down to they're stuck on a small triangular piece of ice just floating around like a cartoon it's like a cartoon it's like the size of a you know desert island with 28 guys all their gear and three boats and they're just on a piece of ice Mm -hmm. so i've been trying to work out the visual in my head this whole time these piece these chunks of ice that they're on these 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 just spaces how how large how thick i guess are they on average like are they two feet off the proper sea level technically are they seven feet it does it depend on what sheet they're on it varies depending on the time of the year the location and the age of the ice flow the older it is the thicker it is and the more stable however the basic gist I was able to get from a little bit of side research as well as when they talk about it um, is it's probably about five feet or so thick because there's points when they f- can fall into, so they're on top of the ice and they yeah, can walk around the ice. That. They fall waist level and they're still standing on solid ice. And these are, you know, six foot tall men, five, five to six feet tall or so. So if they're about three feet into the into the ice and they are not falling into the ocean, that's implying a decent level of thickness, right? So at least five feet thick is what I'm seeing. At this point, though, I have a feeling that the ice is probably a little thinner than that. And what's scarier is there are now holes forming where it's not solid at all. It's honeycombing, right? right? It's looking like Swiss cheese. But this but this five-foot-thick ice, it's... I'm sure there's also that concern of if it if it comes apart under one of the boats, it's high enough off the ground the boat could take a turn on the way down. It's not just yeah. gonna easily pop down a foot and a half into water. You're far enough off that the boat could go sideways. And if they lose their boats, they have no chance. And these boats are in pretty good condition. They have, you know repaired them well enough so that they are seaworthy, but they are mostly having to row them around. They do have sails to an extent, but, you know, like I said in the previous episode, only two of them actually have, like, functioning sail systems. The other one doesn't. Um, They actually, to finally bring it up, because we're getting to the point where the boats become really important, the boats are called... I would argue the boats were always relatively important. But now they're going to actually get in the boats, and the boats are called the Dudley Docker. Quality. Which is the, uh, if I remember correctly, the heaviest boat. So the m- one that's the most resistant to ocean waves. It kind of keeps its position in the water the best. But it's not the best boat. The best boat's called the James Caird. And, the, and James Caird is, again, the a sponsor. sponsor. Yeah. He was a um, Scottish industrialist that was the main backer. And the last one's called the Stancombe Wills. And the Stancombe Wills is the worst boat. It's the one that doesn't even have the complete mast. And it becomes a bit of a liability, as we'll see. And so what they end up having to do is on April 9th, because the ice is shattered, is they, they spend the rest of the night asleep. They're shattered in the middle of the night. And then they launch the boats in the morning. And they spend the next three days on one of the most torturous journeys of their life. The first thing that happens to them is when they get into the water is they're presented with 
a landscape that is a swirling mixture of crashing ice on top of the water. There is practically no spot on the water that is just open water. There's always big chunks of slushy ice slamming back and forth, and the men oftentimes have to take big sticks or their oars and actually push the ice away. To keep it from shattering the, the whole of the boat. And at the same time, the boats have to be wary of the wind direction and the movement of the flows, because if those flows all get pushed toward them, they might get hit by basically a wave of ice that will smash them into another chunk of ice. So if the flows close around them now, they're not in a massive ship like the Endurance. They're in dinghies, and they will 100% be drowned. There's a point on the first day when they can see a enormous wave of ice moving toward them, and they're desperately rowing as fast as their carbohydrate-deficient bodies can the opposite direction through a gap in the flows because they can see a better open channel of water, and they know if they can get to that opening, they'll survive that wave of ice. And they do. But that's the level of danger that they're in. This isn't just rowing in the water. This is rowing through an obstacle course where if you make a mistake, you're going to drown in frozen, icy water. At night, they do one of two things. Remember, they're there for about three and a half days or floating, moving around. They don't even know exactly what island they're going to yet. Shacklin has to keep changing it depending on how they're moving through the ice flows. We're going to go to the Antarctic Peninsula. We're going to go to Clarence Island. We're now going to go to Elephant Island. It changes as they go. Every night, they have to tie up either onto an old stable flow, another little triangle of ice that's not going to break, it seems. Yeah, they maybe. Will, they'll tie up the boats onto the side of it in the lee side. That's the side that's not being hit by the wind. And they'll camp up in their camp in their tents. They'll turn on their bubber, blubber stoves and make a hot meal, hot drinks, and they will do their best to sleep. And then the next morning, get right back in the boat and zigzag through the chaos. On one final night... For days they do this. For days. Ugh. In the flow, they're doing that. On the last night in the flow, they can't even find a suitable chunk of ice to get on, and they have to lock the boats up next to an iceberg with two of the boats in tow because the Stancombe Wills is basically no longer seaworthy at this point. It, it's it, just taking too many hits. Just taking too many hits. And the men inside are starting to fall apart. And the boats are in a, th a line of all three tied together behind this iceberg, which they had tried to get up on, but they knew if they did, it would tip and flip. The iceberg would? Yeah. They have to go and check these icebergs because they have to make sure that there's enough of a stable buoy underneath. Remember, most of the iceberg, as we know, is the phrase tip of the iceberg. Most of the iceberg is underneath the water. But certain structures in the ice mean that if the iceberg gets bumped or the wind hits it wrong, it'll flip. And if it flips, the boats just get launched and they're all dead. Right. Finally, after that night with the iceberg, they're able to get out of the ice. It's not the water is crystal clear, but they're out of the ice flows. And now it's get to the closest land possible. They're going to go to Elephant Island, which is a small, insignificant, just island made of rock and ice, but it's, it's land. It's the closest one. And it's close, and the wind favors it. It's actually technically not the closest. It's the closest they, they could get to. Okay. There's a ton more land off to the west, but all the winds come from the west. 
they're in the area of the westerlies where pretty much the wind constantly blows from the west unless there's some sort of special storm. So they know if they try to go in any of the other directions, they're just not going to make it. And they start to row for Elephant Island. Now, it's 20 below zero because they're being hit by one of those southern gales, except they're in the middle of the ocean. So that gale pushes all of that seawater as spray into the boats. So it's negative 20, and they're being drenched by sometimes water, sometimes ice particles, sometimes slush. They're, they're freezing because they can't get dry. They're rowing nonstop for days on end without the proper diet. They can't really take breaks. They're starting to suffer from something you would not expect. They're starting to die of thirst. Because mm, they've got, they have no access to freshwater uh, I, uh, icebergs anymore. They had two giant chunks of ice when they were forced to get into the water. And they were in the water for days, and they managed to get a couple off of that last iceberg. One of them gets covered in salt water, and it gets destroyed. So all three boats are dependent on one big chunk of ice. So the men, when they need water, they have to be given an ice cube that they put in their mouth and let thaw. It got so bad that they began ripping open the seals and drinking their blood because it was liquid. Shackleton describes this time period very simply. 108 hours of toil, tumbling, freezing, and soaking with little or no sleep to keep up their morale, that the way that people tend to behave in these kinds of circumstances, the men begin to speak to each other, make these bizarre bargains. They start to sell matches to each other for like cases of champagne when they get back to England. Because the match, which are very rare for them at this point because they've just been using them for so long, the matches are so valuable just as a as warmth to light the stove to make a hot drink in the tiny breaks they get that it's as valuable as 50-year-old champagne. I'm also, I'm, I'm sure that a major factor there is also a little bit of escapism and and homeward boundedness of like, like when we get back, I'm buying you a drink kind of thing. Just having to remind yourself and your comrades that like, we are going to get through this. We are going to get through this because you owe me a bunch of champagne. It's light, but it, 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 it might keep you alive. And they're making jokes and they're laughing. Shackleton begins to describe laughter as painful because these men are covered in salt spray so often that the salt's no longer leaving their skin. And it's chapping them. Not Just imagine chap lips everywhere. The clothes they're wearing are wet with salt water for so long that they're rubbing against the skin. They're basically covered in rug burn. Their entire mm. body, and they're rowing through rug burn. At one point, they're, uh, they get by such a cold storm that the boats frost over. And the men are having to move and crunch the ice off of themselves. One guy holding the tiller of the boat basically gets locked in place because he, he's so tired, he's so frozen, and he has to be, like, removed from it. Shackleton isn't sleeping at all. He's awake the entire time. 
He's been awake for days at this point, as have almost all the officers. Finally, because they can see it, they just continue to row toward Elephant Island and they reach the island, but in one of the final storms, they lose sight of one of the boats. The Dudley Docker, the big heavy boat with um, Worsley as its captain, the third in command, it gets separated and they lose sight of it. At this point, the Stancombe Wills had become so unseaworthy for two reasons. One, it was the worst of the boats, and two, most of the people inside the boat were no longer functioning sailors. The Stancombe Wills is being dragged. I guess toad is the fancier word. For, is that fancier? I don't think the toe is It's ever the nautical fancy. term. Let's say it that way. Right. So the Stancombe Wills is being towed by the In James the classical Care. sense. Yes. In the classical sense. <laughs> you know, it's fancy that way. The men in these boats, it's only about half of them are rowing anymore. I mean, they've even, in some of these storms, lost their oars. So they're short on oars. They don't have any water. They're, some of these men just shut down. It's five days of this. As they approach the island, though, the currents actually prevent them from getting to the island. They have to wait. They can see the island. It's right in front of them, but the current is pushing so far out from the island, they have to wait. They have to drop anchor and stare at the island for a day. And Shackleton says this was the worst time of the entire ordeal because one, they're dying of thirst. Two, half his men are insane. They have shell shock. And three, he thinks he's lost a third of his crew. He just thinks they're all dead. He thinks they sunk. They find a protected cove where there's a line of rocks that provides a decent boundary. And they finally get themselves into the harbor. Apparently, it's very difficult to get into the harbor. And when, by the way, that third boat does show up, it actually has to go in backwards. They basically have to have the boat hit the current and spin backwards into the harbor. After all of this that they've just gone through, the guy is able to do like an impossible feat of maneuvering because he's so good at guiding the ship. Jeez. And that's Worsley that we're talking about, that third in command. This guy is the best captain of a boat I have ever read about. And I've actually been able to read about it in a little bit of detail because Shackleton, being a sailor, goes into a lot of detail to the level of finagling that they had to do to do this. Now, Shackleton had to do something similar to go in with the way the currents worked in this harbor. When they get these boats to the harbor, only about half the men are able to get them out of the water. The men all jump into the water and get to the land. They stake the boat. And about half the guys just simply start to pick up the pebbles on the beach as if they're gold coins from a pirate's booty and just start to laugh hysterically as they roll around on... Just dry land. Dr land. Land, not dry land. This is not dry land. There's this is dry land. land. A couple of the men can't walk. Their feet are so frostbitten. One guy had a heart attack. And a solid, at least a dozen of them are clearly insane. All the officers aren't, somehow. Despite the fact that none of them have slept. They, they are just made of something else. These guys are impressive. Are the officers rowing as well? Uh-huh. They're oftentimes actually, they may not be doing all of the physical labor, but they're the ones having to think and watch and come you know use the uh, the, rudder. the rudder and yeah. move the boats around yeah um and they're they are taking the oars too they're cycling through it's yeah. always a cycle so the officers are just like 
the best of the best in the situation. Yeah. Just, just to be able to hold their, their faculties. When they reach this shingle beach on Elephant Island, they are encountered with a really big problem. They do have the benefit that they are safe for the time being. They set up their tents. Everyone is just destroyed, but they are able to sleep on the beach in some protection. They know two things prevent them from staying on this beach. One, it's exposed. There is no shelter on this beach at all. And two, they have to find where the tide is. This isn't something when, you know, we go to the beach, you, you see the tide come in and out, and it doesn't really affect a beachgoer. Just find the dry sand and put your towel there. Well, when they're on the beach, they now have to pay attention to how the tides work. Okay, so I do need to explain how the tides work for this to make any sense. And just to give you a little background, probably for the first time, I teach science. I'm a science teacher, and I do teach this subject. So this is where I really love this story because it brings in astronomy and the practical astronomy to a history story. Yeah, and I'm sure the, I'm sure the astronomy of this is very interesting given where they are in the world. There are two high tides and two low tides every day. And it's gonna, the tide's going to rise and fall and rise and fall about six hours apart. It's six hours and 15 minutes. And it's caused by whenever the Earth rotates, the part of Earth that's facing the moon receives high tide. And the part of Earth facing away from the moon receives a second high tide. So opposite sides of the planet that have the moon directly above, they're receiving high tide. And the water is literally pulled by moon, the moon's gravity from the part of the planet that's at a right angle from the moon that are experiencing low tide. Well, since the Earth rotates once every 24 hours, as that position turns, when you get a quarter of the way through, start at high tide, quarter of the way around, you're at a low tide. That's six hours. Another six hours is halfway, 12 hours. You're at your next high tide. Next low tide, next high tide. But the moon moves slightly, so there's a little delay. The high tide and low tide is not what's really affecting them. But the moon is not the only thing that causes the tides. The gravity of the moon pulls on Earth's water. The water is able to move because the Earth's water isn't anchored down like the land is. It's liquid. It can slosh. The sun also plays a part in the tides. The sun does about one-fifth of the gravitational power that's affecting the tides. So if the sun and moon are aligned with the Earth out in space, the sun and moon pull in the same direction and make the high tide extra high. If the sun and moon are at a right angle, that makes the high tide lower. So the high tide is still a high tide, and low tide is still a low tide, but they don't get quite as high and quite as low. There's a smaller difference between them. So what they need to look at is where is that what's called a spring tide? That's that the moon and sun line up. Where's that spring tide mark? Because that's the highest tide. And a spring tide always happens twice a month. Because when the sun and moon and earth all line up, that's a full moon and a new moon. So during the full moon and new moon, the tide's going to be very high. So they got to go find that spot where there's evidence that the water's been hitting. So if their beach is below that mark, they have to figure out what the moon is, which they probably didn't know, because they know they only have a certain amount of days before a high tide is going to flood them. So that's given to them. And Shackleton mentions that they only had a little bit of time on this beach before they were going to get inundated, because when they found that spring tide mark, which was going to be at the next new moon or next full moon, they were in between. When the moon looks like a half moon, it's called a quarter moon, and that's when the sun and moon are pulling at different directions, and you get those lower high tides. 
they knew that they were going to get flooded within the next week. Because it's new moon, two weeks later it's a full moon, two weeks later it's another new moon. So they were in between the two spring tides. That's not a lot of time. So as exhausted as they were, they're immediately hit with a clock. We have to get off this spot. So there's solutions to get put Worsley, and I think a couple of the sailors who are still with it, onto a boat, and they have to go around Elephant Island and hopefully find a spot that they can camp semi-permanently. Oh, so the, the harbor that they're in, there is just no spot that they can access that's high enough. That's what they find out. They look for the spring tide. They know that they're in between the new moon and full moon. They will be flooded so if they be, stay. Their whole beach is just going to be underwater. Or be exposed to so much wave action that they are unlikely to be okay. They are able to camp out for a bit, but we're talking days. The moon cycles pretty quick when you think about it. Mm -hmm. And that's tide cycles, again, just attached to the moon cycle. Thankfully, Worsley finds a location for them to set up a permanent camp. He finds a much wider, higher spit of land. It is fully exposed to the ocean in terms of like storms and wind, but it's covered in giant boulders that the men can put their tents on the other side of. And the spring tide mark is comfortably below the top part of the ridge of boulders. And so the men move all their boats over there. Again, quite a few of the guys aren't even able to walk. When they first showed up on Elephant Island, um, there is a tradition where the youngest sailor is the first one to walk onto the land. Well, Shackleton goes to the youngest sailor, that guy who had stowed away, Blackborough, and he says, get into the water. Blackborough was shell-shocked and had frostbitten feet, and so he just doesn't respond. So Shackleton actually picks him up and throws him on land. Be like, just get onto the land. Yeah, everyone's and, waiting for you. And then Blackborough didn't move. He just basically laid there on the sand and couldn't walk. And Shackleton's like, <laughs> writes in his memoir, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but it, it, to sum it up, it's, it, it's in like yeah. six paragraphs of British speak. I shouldn't have done that. I felt really bad. <laughs> it was like an apology to poor Black Bro. They chucked him off the boat. But that's the state that these guys are in. This isn't a comfortable bunch. 108 hours of toil, tumbling, freezing, and soaking with little or no sleep. But now they're safe. They are actually safe. For now. Since they're further north, there is a lot more life around them. On, on Elephant Island, it's named after the number of elephant seals on the island. The island is unbelievably filled with seals and penguins and basically sustenance. Okay. They're getting farther enough north that there's little bits of plants here and there. It's like grasses and things. Elephant Island, not so much, but some of the islands that they could potentially reach. There's actual, like, plant life. I mean, we've gotten to the point, the part of planet Earth where there there are no plants. And this is like the southernmost place and it's all grass and lichen and boring things, but you can make those into beds and things like that. Those simple creature comforts that these guys are desperately wanting. Are they, are they finding access to fresh water again? They do have access to fresh water. One of the first things they all do is they find a stream and they all drink, to, drink their fill. Um, they try to find ways to dry their clothes. All the tobacco smokers try to burn as many different things as possible that could hopefully produce tobacco. They're burning seaweed. <laughs> they're burning tussock grass. They're doing everything possible. And they start to go back to that, let's just kind of wade it out 
mentality. Huge numbers of the men have frostbite, and a couple of them are becoming gangrenous. So there's problems like that. They do have two doctors with them, so the doctors are starting to you know, try to make sure everyone's okay. But their tents are not thick enough for where they are. And if they thought that blizzards were bad down on the ice, when they're exposed to the ocean to this extent, blizzards now are really wet. And the tents don't really help. And they're starting to become ratty. And the tents are, there's holes in them. And they're having to patch them up with parts of the sails and things like that. In fact, the sails were made from tents in the first place. So they're having to really cannibalize, again, their boats to maintain their stay there and not be incredibly uncomfortable. They're also on top of medium-sized rocks. It's not like they're on a nice flat sandy beach. These are boulders and sharp, jagged volcanic rocks, black, black rocks. And this is also a nest area for birds. So all the rocks are completely covered in bird droppings, which as these warmer storms come in, the whole island melts, and they're basically sleeping on top of bird poop that permeates everything, and it smells, and they're covered in it all day. To keep themselves comfortable, they have to light their blubber stoves inside their tents, and so inside the tent, they're covered in black smoke. So they're covered in bird droppings, covered in blubber smoke, and they're eating pemmican and seal hush and maybe a biscuit, maybe some tea. So within a very short period of time, Shackleton makes a bold decision, almost a reckless decision. They have no choice anymore. Too many of the men are shell-shocked. Too many of the men are now permanently disabled. They have to find help. Well, where they are located on Elephant Island is a, it's hundreds of miles, but it's about 700 miles southwest of South Georgia Island, where there is that Norwegian whaling station. Shackleton decides to take six men, himself included, on the James Caird, the best rowboat they have, the one that McNish was able to make into the best boat. It's the lightest. It's the one that can handle thing, just that voyage the best. And they're going to cross hundreds of miles of open ocean. In a rowboat. In a rowboat with a sail made from a tent. And this isn't just the open ocean. This is the furious 50s, the latitude around 50 degrees south, where the southern ocean is basically free of any impediment. And what I mean by that is, though the ocean in the northern hemisphere has its storms and its severity, there's a lot of land at the top of the, con of the world. There's just not as much open ocean. If you look at a map of the southern ocean, there's a band of latitude where there is no land, except for a few tiny ocean, uh, tiny islands in the ocean, so that those boats that are going to have to cross that are being hit by just storm after storm after storm. An ideal model of the way like storms work on planet Earth, if there's no land-sea boundary, it's just repeated storm after storm. It's just literally one cyclone moving around the country, like around the country, around the world after another. So they're going to be hit by not just you know, some wind is going to be the biggest, baddest possible storm systems that a sailor can handle, and they have to do it in a rowboat. Seems unwise. This is called the Voyage of the James Caird. 
and it is one of the most impressive feats of seafaring that human beings have ever done. I'm going to just start with Shackleton's summary of it. And he says this, The tale of the next 16 days is one of supreme strife amid heaving waters. The sub-Antarctic Ocean lived up to its evil winter reputation. I decided to run north for at least two days while the wind held and so get into warmer weather before turning to the east and laying a course for South Georgia. We took two hourly spells at the tiller for steering. The men who were not on watch crawled into the sodden sleeping bags and tried to forget their troubles for a period, but there was no comfort in the boat. The bags and cases of supplies seemed to be alive in the unfailing knack of presenting their most uncomfortable angles to our rest-seeking bodies. A man might imagine for a moment that he had found a position of ease, but always discovered quickly that some unyielding point was impinging on muscle or bone. That just describes one of the key forms of discomfort. Not only was the, the water that they were sailing through basically so windswept and wavy that the boat would rise up and down to such an extent that when they were in the trough between two wave crests, there was no wind. The two crests blocked the wind, and they would rise back up. So while they were trying to survive through that level of rough seas, they couldn't even sleep because their boat was just not designed for that. It was shifting around so much that they would be getting hit in the head by crates. A couple of the guys stop writing their diaries at this point. They just stop. The men that Shackleton chose to bring were the most impressive and most with it guys he had to be able to handle this. He brought with him Worsley, his navigator, McNish, because he needed somebody who could repair things even though he strongly distrusted them. And he brought with him three of the best sailors that he had. Two of the actual sailors, Vincent, the guy who had gotten in trouble for being a bully, another man named McCarthy, who was probably the, the best sailor that they had, always had a good, good attitude. Apparently he was still positive and cracking jokes during this whole voyage. And finally, he brought Tom Crean, Crean who had been down with Robert Falcon Scott, Crean who was his basically best possible follower. Carolyn Alexander describes him as indestructible. Hmm. All of these are huge men, too. These are all six-foot-something guys, and they just were chosen for their abilities and their pure strength. He needed the best guys he could get. Yeah, you have to row 700 miles. Yeah. And it takes them 16 days. Here's the craziest part. Just let's think about the logistics. If you're in a boat like this, how do you get to the island? How do you know where it is? Just think about how do they actually do that? I'm going to say that the answer isn't GPS, but I don't have a better way of doing it. The answer is the old school GPS. So what they do is they had a basically a set of nautical charts which showed them all of the major features of where everything was, how far apart different islands are, the basic currents and things like that. These had been almost destroyed in their, their first sea trek to Elephant Island to the point where they're incredibly smudged. And some of the most important papers, like where the one with South Georgia Island on it, was smudged to the point where they were kind of guessing at the numbers because it was just one giant ink blob. 
And to tell you that they don't really know what South Georgia is, like South Georgia Island's interior was blank on the map. So where mm-hmm. they're going, it's not like it's well-known, even though there's the Norwegian whaling station there. And what Worsley has to do, and he's doing all of this in the middle of a ship that's going up and down to such an extent that there's no wind between the crests of the waves, is he has to figure out their latitude and longitude. Now, latitude's easy. Basically, just look at the sky. You can tell it from a wide variety of ways. The easiest way in the northern hemisphere is whatever degree above the horizon the north star is, that's where you are on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. So we're in Roseville, California right now. We're at like 38 degrees north. The north star is 38 degrees in the sky. It's that simple. In southern hemisphere, it's harder. There's no south star. That just isn't. It's not the right spot. Um, and so you can use the Southern Cross. You can use a couple of other things. You can use where the sun is at this, that specific time of the day because as you move north and south along the planet, the sun's angle changes because the sky rotates as you move across the sphere of the planet. So a latitude is pretty easy, but the one that's really tough is longitude. Sailors could not figure out where they were east and west on planet Earth until a guy invented something called a chronometer. A chronometer was an invention by one man that allowed people to use time zones to figure out where they were on the planet. That's why Greenwich Mean Time exists, because they set a very specific clock that was always right in London. And you could figure out, based on complicated charts, what time it was in London, and then you could look at what time it was where you were based on where the sun was at noon and match those charts. And the difference between your observation of the sun at noon and what the sun should be at noon in London told you how far east or west you were from London. And if London is at zero, you just add the numbers and, okay, I know I'm at 70 degrees east, something like that. They're in the middle of storms in the ocean. So Worsley would have to get up, wrap his arm around the mast as the boat is slamming back and forth, and wait for a break in the clouds where he could actually see the horizon and the sun. It took them over a week or about a week just to see the sun once because it's cloudy. (laughs) And when he gets his reading. This story is insane. (laughs) I know, right? And when he gets his reading, they're able to adjust their course. And they actually get lucky-ish is they get a a nice period. Um, So remember, it's 16 days total. So days like 10 through 13 or so. Um, they get a beautiful southerly push where it's cold but clear and they get this gorgeous weather and they get to take a break and it's pushing them perfectly toward where they want to go and they can keep seeing the sun as well so they're able to navigate because of that but when they're getting pretty close to South Georgia Island they get hit by the strongest storm that Shackleton has ever seen and while they're trying to bail their boat as much as they can because the water is just pouring into the boat from this storm. The waves are massive. It's like something out of an action movie as the boat's just rising and falling and spinning. They have to lock their sails against the wind and just hold their position so they can rise with the waves rather than have the waves topple them over. And then Shackleton thinks he sees um, land. It looks like there's like land. There's some weird shape on the horizon. He's like, what is that? Because it's really high up that there's this like white line. I don't like where this is going. It's a wave. I 
thought I wouldn't like where this is going. This is a rogue wave. It wasn't until fairly recently that we actually had proof that rogue waves existed. We're not entirely sure what causes a rogue wave, but it's basically when you get a wave that is substantially higher than the waves around it. So if they're in 30, 40 foot swells, this is like a 100 plus foot wave. I'm not sure exactly how tall, because Shackleton didn't have a long time of measuring it. He right. simply saw the wave, realized it was a wave, and panically called everyone to brace. Basically, we're in for it now, boys. Within seconds, the wave smashes the boat and actually actively sinks it. They are multiple feet underwater when this wave hits. And if they had chosen the Dudley Docker, they probably would have all died. But the James Caird was very light, which is an advantage because light boats float better. That is insane. They're, so they're like, they're so close. And then it's like, whoop, what fresh hell is this? They're literally underwater. And they're not, this is not how you want to be when you're in a boat. Yeah, very rarely. Unless you're a submarine. Right. Well, you're not a boat then. You're a U-boat. Okay. But, yeah, I was going to say, very rarely is the goal of a boat to be underwater. Feels like not why I had a boat in the first place. I would have saved the money if I wanted to be under the water. But the boat rises. And it manages to break the surface. Remember, it's not breaking the surface into nice, calm. It's breaking the surface into a chaotic storm. Right. And the men, somehow still all on the boat. Think about that. They're not attached they're just on it, and it rises underneath them. So they all don't get kicked out of the boat. They're all still there. Yeah. They bail the boat desperately, barely manage to stabilize it. And at this point, it's pretty much about three or four of the guys who are still functioning sailors when that storm finally ends. Finally make it to South Georgia Island. And just to add even more, the... Norse-Norwegian whaling camp is on the northeastern side of the island because that's sheltered from the wind. Well, they're using the wind to get to the island, so guess what part of the island they reach? I'm going to go with uh, southwestern for 500, Bob. They are 100% at the southwestern side of the island. You gotta love it. They reach the island, and remember, they're dying of thirst, they haven't eaten... Etc. Etc. All also, those they were same all things. All underwater recently. Yes. Again, they have to reach the island, and they they manage to find their way into what's called King Hick, um, Hakon Bay. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. It's H A A K O N. It's a old uh, Norwegian king, King Hakon Bay. And they find shelter. In fact, the first place they go is they find this really beautiful cove. And at the edge of the cove is some boulders, and when they reach that cove, there's a cave, a cave in the cove, and the cave is actually got icicles hanging in front of it that act as a windbreak. So on that first night, not only do they uh, is there a waterfall and stream coming by the cave, but the cave is dry and there's grass nearby. And so they're able to make like a true shelter in this cave. So they get the grass, they form nice beds with the grass, they dry all their materials. Imagine having the strength to build a bed at this point. I think at a certain at a certain point, 
You just become numb to everything. You become numb to your own pain. You just want comfort. You just need to get out of these stupid clothes. And you're, you're, you're chafed and you have open sores all over your body. Their lips were so chapped, they couldn't make emotions with their mouths. They could only tell what someone was trying to convey emotionally by their eyes because their mouths were locked in place because they were so scabbed. Mm. They get lucky and right above their cave, they climbed up a relatively um, stable slope with a bunch of grass on it. There's a bunch of al- albatross nests, and there's baby albatrosses at like the perfect level, so they're giant, and they don't fight back because they're babies, and so they just raid all the nests, and they they cook them into their stew, and Shackleton writes just that was the best meal of his entire life, was eating these albatross chicks, which he even admits he felt bad about. Right. He didn't. They didn't like to do this. They didn't actually like to hunt these animals. They did it because they kind of had to. Yeah. Um. He said it was the best meal of his life. There's a windbreak from the icicles. Um, the men are able to dry their gear. They have comfortable, dry bedding for the first time in their lives. Um, they're finally comfortable, and they have to leave as quickly as possible. Right, because it's only six of them. And they're there as a rescue mission. Yep. Yeah, because there's only six of them, which means a whole bunch of people are still on Elephant Island right now. I didn't go into too much detail when I said that because I, I guess it was kind of assumed, but this is their let's go get civilization and bring civilization back to our crew. This is our only chance. They can bring the entire crew. Right. They couldn't handle that. Yeah. Imagine imagine the, uh, what's it called? The Wills trainer? The Stancomb Wills. The Stancomb Wills. Uh, yeah. Imagine the standby me getting hit by that wave. It would not go well. <laughs> no. No, I, if they had tried this with all the men, they, they certainly would have ended in disaster. I mean, it, it, it kind of did anyways. Yeah. Unfortunately, they can't stay in this cave um, forever because they can't access the interior of the island um, with where they are. They also can't use the boat to move around the island because the boat had been damaged to such an extent in the travels that uh, they just... They would get swept out to the open ocean. One more did. thing goes wrong and mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. sink. Um, if I remember correctly, they didn't even have a functioning rudder when they reached the the land. They like, I don't remember exactly how, but it was like, you know, they're spinning around in circles as they reach the ocean. Their their boat is so dysfunctional, but it is functional enough that they can move across the bay. And so they they scout the bay a little bit and they move across to a a, a relatively comfortable and sheltered area. South Georgia Island is much further north than where they've been before. It's a lot warmer considerably more temperate of a location it's being hit by storm after storm but it would remind you more of iceland where you can survive there there's 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 plants there's life um but now they're stuck with the the problem that after all of this they have to cross south georgia island they have to cross the interior of the island which is basically one giant mountain with a glacier on top of it it's Jagged mountain peaks covered in glaciers and snow fields and boulders and avalanches. And they have to cross it because they know, they have a map. They know where they need to go, but they have to get there. So there's another culling where Shackleton has to choose his best and, well, healthiest men. And they have to get rid of McNish and Vincent because they're immobile and insane. And they're left with McCarthy, the other sailor, who is the only one of... Sane enough to make sure that the two mm-hmm. of them still eat and mm-hmm. don't just wither away in the cave. While they're kind of tramping around that bay, 
they find the remnants of many shipwrecks. And there's and what's even sadder about it, they find like kids' toys. Mm. That's how bad this area of the world is. There's just shipwreck after shipwreck over here. And there's actually um, evidence. We know that when the James Caird and these six men did this voyage, large like steamships went down in that same blizzard that had the rogue wave. Like major ships Jeez. went under in that storm and their tiny dinghy, because of their abilities, did not. So for the final part of the story, in terms of the actual escapade here, they have to cross South Georgia Island. Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean, the invincible trio, the three strongest and healthiest men left, cut eastward into the island. The problem they have right at the get-go is they don't know what's inside the island. Right, you mentioned that the interior of the island is blank on the maps. It's just not been traveled. No one's crossed this island ever. Hey, you got to be the first person to cross something. <laughs> I never thought of that. That's Congratulations. Awesome. You managed to do the thing. <laughs> That's <Right>. perfect. <laughs> As they cross the island, they're rather quickly surrounded by a somewhat dense fog, which makes it so that even with their guesstimation and climbing to high points, they try to see where they can go. They're not really able to see um, they get to one point where they, they get on top of a big mountain and they look down and see the ocean. And they're like, wait a minute, that's not right. And they're in the next bay over. They'd gone the completely wrong direction. So at the top of this ridge, so they can see, they have to go from ridge to ridge to ridge. And then like... Just to keep their bearings. Just to keep their bearings. And they know which way they need to go. And they kind of have to scramble down across various ice glaciers at one point, they think they're in the right spot, but it turns out they're on top of a giant glacier, and they're like, we're, we can't be on a glacier. If we're on a glacier, we're in the wrong spot, and so they have to go around. There's a point where there, there are five ridges, and there's four passes in between each ridge, and they go and check the ridge on the, f- the closest. It takes them forever, hours, to climb up, and there's a sheer cliff. They go to the next ridge over, and it's impassable as well. They go to the next ridge over, and they can't get down that one either and find they're like if we don't go to this next ridge we we may not be able to make it and they can they get to that next ridge and they basically have to walk down a sheer ice cliff but they can do it so finally they managed to make it down at one point without going to all the details of all the little things they experience you can read it if you want at one point they are at the top of a snow slope and the fog is coming up behind them and they know that at the top of this slope i believe it's actually that fourth ridge the top of this slope as the fog comes up the ridge behind them there's this long snow slope just like what you ski on the men look around they're exhausted they at one point had tried to fall asleep and Shackleton said all right we'll take a 30 minute break he wakes them up within five minutes and then lies to them they've been asleep for 30 minutes to rest and cook food they have to dig a hole and two of them have to lay down and act as a windbreak so they can light their blubber stove after they had slept like that, it took them an hour to straighten back up because they were so stiff from being dehydrated, from being you know, mal- malnourished. So with all that in mind, they're at the top of this slope, you know, fog coming in behind them, and they know that if they try to walk down it, it'll take them too long. So they rope themselves together, they sit down, and they just sled down on their butts. 
all attached to each other, holding on. And they said that even with all the pain that they'd been going through, about halfway through, they're all screaming in delight because they're having so much fun as they're flying down this gently flattening slope where they're making this massive amount of distance in like the best and most fun way possible. They're like, it's one of those where finally something works yeah, out. Yeah, we finally caught a break. Like this is the opposite of all the things we tried to do with the sleds at the start of this trip. Yeah. This is actually using skis. <laughs> butt skis. Butt skis. They managed to... This is now, this is now titled Butt Ski Camp. <laughs> they managed to find their way around a variety of snow slopes and ridges and things like that. And out in front of them, up on a ridge, they can see the bay where the Norwegian camp is, though they can't quite tell. They know that they're there, and then they hear something. And then they hear something they haven't heard in almost two years. They hear a sound of human civilization. They hear the sound of the whistle at the whaling station, the whistle that means the men are going to start their work day. It's the first human-produced sound they had heard since they got caught in the ice. They have a torturous journey around in circles, up and down, just to get to the correct spot. And then finally, at the very end, they come up against a sheer waterfall, just a massive cliff of a waterfall, where a glacier is melting and flowing into the water below. And they're just staring down at it, being like, well, guess we're going to have to do this. They all rope themselves together. And the first one down is Korean, and he just goes straight into the frozen pool. And he gets completely drenched in frigid water. But he's able to use himself as an anchor as he's shivering to get the other two down, who all get drenched. And they're so covered in icy water that they, if they don't keep moving, they will certainly freeze, And but they keep walking. At this point, it's such a difficult trek, and it's only a couple of days in total, by the way. They both describe that there was as if, they all describe it as if four of them were walking. And all of them say the same things, as if there was a fourth person with them, implying God. They just felt that there was something helping them because for all purposes, for all logic, they should not have been able to succeed across this journey in the physical state that they are in. They finally reach the outskirts of this camp where all the Norwegians are. And the first thing they come upon, two kids, two little Norwegian kids who turn, look at them, <laughs> and scream and run. Of course. These guys look like monsters. They do. And they come upon a Norwegian man who thinks they're like just drunk sailors until they ask him in English. The Norwegians don't speak English. They ask him in English, take us to the guy who runs the station, who they had stayed with a little less than two years before. And the guy goes, Two years. The guy goes, okay. Leads the three men over. And he actually forces them to stay outside because he thinks they're just drunks. And, when he, and he goes and tells the guy in charge, hey, come on out so that you can see who these guys are. And the guy in charge does speak English. And they had just stayed with him in the relatively recent past. But they were so messed up physically that no one could recognize them. When they said, you know, do you remember us? The guy goes, I, I don't remember you, but I remember your voice. And hmm. then Shackleton says, I'm Shackleton. And the Norwegian just blows up. He goes, I cannot believe you're here. We all thought you were dead. 
one of the first things Shackleton asks is, how's the war going? Oh, man. And one, one of the best summaries of World War I is given by this Norwegian on South Georgia Island. Because Shackleton did not ask, how's the war going? He asked, who won the war? Uh. This is 1916. This is during the Battle of the Somme. This is during the peak of the war. And the Norwegian says, the war is not over. Millions are dying. Humanity is mad. Shackleton clearly stinks and they're covered in grime, but they are given a warm meal. They're, giving, they're given a nice bath and beds and people like leave their homes to give them you know, what they need. The Norwegians make sure that they are as comfortable as possible. Even though Shackleton's like, I need to leave now. No, I don't, I don't need a bath. I need to leave now. And they're like, no, you, you have to convalesce for a little bit. Otherwise, this isn't happening. Um, and even in the end, uh, they immediately muster up a boat, and it's like the next day after they've all shaven and cleaned, and only Worsley goes back to get the other three on South Georgia. They get them on the boat, they bring them back, and they're all comfortable. Shackleton tells the Norwegians about the trip that they did from Elephant Island to South Georgia Island, and the Norwegians cannot understand how they even did it. Right. They, it's one of those, they had like a 1% chance of survival, and they pulled it off. They had experienced that storm themselves on the island, and they're like, how did you get through that? In that boat? The boat? I, I don't think they, like, rescued the boat. I don't know what happened to the boat. Right. After, at this point, the boat's done from the story. But that little boat got them through. Meanwhile, on Elephant Island, the rest of the men, many of whom are still mentally unstable, are starting to suffer from the issues of malnutrition and their stay begins to extend to a pretty scary point because though Shackleton manages to reach South Georgia Island, winter is starting to fall upon that part of the world. They immediately get a boat and the boat can't make it through the ice. Shackleton finally gets the Falkland Islands. Weeks are passing. And he lobbies the British government, who is in the middle of World War I, and having all its ships sunk by German U-boats, can you get me a boat? No, is the reply. We don't have a boat. Well, could you lobby South Americans to give us a boat? Yes. They get a boat from the Uruguayans. It doesn't work. It, it can't get through. Finally, they get a boat from the Chileans. A little tugboat, basically, but one that is strong enough to get through the ice, and they get incredibly lucky and the ice breaks open perfectly for them and after months after months months after Shackleton got to South Georgia Island he manages to reach his men on Elephant Island and they don't recognize him and they're all miffed that Shackleton didn't come himself because they didn't know what he looked like before they'd forgotten the ordeal on Elephant Island for those men has a couple of interesting tidbits basically they had to flip over, over the boats, all, the 20 of them that were still there, and they turn them into this like big tent boat um, shelter. Shelter, yeah. yeah. Just and something it, it, something to break wind. And they did a pretty good job with it too, and they had, um, they were actually about a week away from starving. They were out of rations at the end, and they were going to have to panically flip the boats back over and try to get to another island when um, Shacklin showed up. Because Wild, who was in charge of them, left behind, he wouldn't let them kill as many penguins and seals as possible because he had to keep that same optimism alive. No, no, we're not going to have a massive store of food because that means we're not going to get saved. 
like almost superstitious idea. Yeah. He is kind of criticized for that one because they, for all intents and purposes, could have died. Right. And they were pretty heavily tasked with stay here, we will come help. And even though they're losing faith that someone's going to come for them, like, yeah, you are kind of playing a waiting game at that point. The one thing that happens that's fascinating to me on Elephant Island is Blackborough has such bad gangrene in his feet that they have to amputate them. It's not amputate all of his feet. They're actually amputating just the front half of one of his feet. Um, but that's a full-on surgery. And they have some gear, and they had the last of their chloroform with them. So they basically take one of the tents, crank up the temperature as warm as possible. So it's like 70-something degrees in the tent, which, remember, is unbearably hot for them. They uh, chloroform as well as they can. They amputate it. And he actually makes a full recovery. The guy who had a heart attack makes a full recovery. And they're all actually totally fine, just starving by the end. And they're all saved. To me, that's the most amazing part of this. No one died. That's insane. You mentioned at the start of this episode that this is the part of the journey that if you made a movie out of this, people would kind of scoff at it for being unbelievable, like... The struggle endured in this doesn't make sense on a narrative level and all that stuff. And I think equally unbelievable is the fact that no one dies in Shackleton's, in, in Shackleton's party. Like, people fall through the ice and don't die. People have amputations. They're, they, they are mentally unfirm. Like, they are – it is a mess. And the fact that no one dies feels equally narratively inaccurate writers would be like hey we live in a post game of thrones world you got to kill off some characters it's just unrealistic otherwise yes yeah. <laughs> and the fact that here we are and he manages to rescue his entire crew is insane and imagine the strain on him when he is waiting months after month after month just for such a long time trying to get a boat to get back to elephant island it, it's not quick and apparently he just begins to drink and drink and drink because he's so stressed out. But they said that he aged 10 years in that sh couple months. And then as soon as he saw his crew on Elephant Island and he counted them and they were all there, it all flooded away from his face. And Jeez. he recovered. And that's the end of the saga. That is the end of the story. They do get back to England, who, which is embroiled in World War I still. They get back in 1917, and they're... Not a great homecoming. <laughs> no. Uh, Shackleton actually stops over in the United States first and does a little lecture tour before he goes back, and he, he gets the news that they had been found safe replaced war news for about a day or two. So it, they did get some reference. Shackleton did get to do a, a tour, but when he returns back in England, there's no warm welcome for him. There's just no energy for it. All of his men join up into the Navy or into the troops. Um, some of them actually have pretty amazing end-of-the-war careers. Um, a few of them die in the war on boats. One of them, uh, I can't remember which one, but gets horribly wounded in the trenches. Worsley becomes a submarine boat destroyer in the Navy, and he uses his amazing navigational skills to seek and destroy submarines in new and novel ways. The most interesting end is Lee's, who everyone hates. He spends a lot of time over in Japan in the interwar period 
and he more or less invents paratrooping. I'm not saying he's the only inventor, but he becomes a major part in developing those tactics. And he dies a crazy old man much later. The vast majority of these guys live to be 70, 80 years old. And almost none of them return to the Antarctic. For good reason. So to end our story, what happens to Ernest Shackleton is he can't stay in civilization. The war ends. Shackleton had tried to participate in the war and is given kind of a easy, cushy position. Um, actually participates more with some of the, uh, the Russian Civil War that proceeds after World War I, as does Worsley. But they decide that they're going to do another expedition only a couple years after they all return. Not the exact same one, but they're going to go back down to South Georgia. They're going to make another trek across Antarctica, another scientific mission. And Shackleton gets all the supplies for that, gets wild, gets cream. They all go back down to South Georgia Island. And in 1920, the early 1920s, Shackleton has a heart attack and dies. Apparently after the endurance trip, he had lived a much harder life. When he couldn't get his men back from Elephant Island, he began drinking excessively, something he wasn't known to do before. And he continued that while he restlessly dealt with living in a more civilized life. He did manage to write his book, South, my main source here, which is a fascinating read. He dictated it and used the book as well as you know Hurley's photos and things to pay off the debts of the trip. Um, but he just couldn't stay in society. He just needed to go out on these adventures. I think some of these guys have this sense of just a lust for adventure. They have to be in the face of something stern. That's how they lived. That's what they did. And Shackleton is laid to rest in the Norwegian cemetery on South Georgia Island next to Frank Wilde. Wow. That's where they are. That's where they still are. This was his name of fame. This is what made him a known person. And yet, it's something that we've mentioned before in this show. His failure became his success. The fact that their initial mission collapsed so quickly and they had to find a way to get home, that failure led to an ultimate, amazing, unbelievable story. And I think it's a story that stands out in the dying days of that optimistic, romantic Europe that Shackleton left in 1914 and that did not exist in 1917 when he returned. So the endurance expedition of those years can be seen as the final story and I think the most epic and truly amazing feats of human power at overcoming the world. That final story of the 19th century, of that age of exploration, of that age of romantic optimism of what humans can achieve. It was just truly amazing. Thank you for joining us for the uh, conclusion of the Endurance Saga. To learn more about this story, to see photos of it, and to really dive deep into kind of what happened at each of these camps and everything, I really encourage you to pick up the resources we used in the research for this episode. Links in the show notes. As always, you can join us on Facebook or on Instagram to interact with either of us about the show and talk to other people who are into it as well. 
Uh, if you've got the time, would love it if you would leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps the show out. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.